My name is Chad. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel Bible. Uh, Ross, our senior pastor, has been on sabbatical this summer, and so we've spent that time breaking up the sermon series with different pastors and elders, and as always, it's such a privilege to, to be here this morning with you, worshiping the Lord and preaching God's Word. We started our series in Jonah last week. We're going to be going through just a chapter at a time. We were in chapter 1 last week. We are in chapter 2 this week. So, in 8th grade, I moved from a small town, real small town, to a big town. Really, a, a pretty big town, 8th grade. In the small town, everyone played every sport. It didn't matter if you were good or bad. You just played. Now, you might ride the bench, but you still played. There were no tryouts, no A team, no B team, no cuts, just team. When I moved to the big town, oh, tryouts, cuts, A team, B team, you couldn't just play. So when I moved in eighth grade, I tried out in eighth grade for the high school, or excuse me, the eighth grade basketball team. I made one of the teams, I don't remember if it was A team or B team, but I made one of the teams and I thought I had a pretty good year that year. Well, next year, it's a whole different story. It was high school basketball. Now I was trying out for the freshman team. So my plan was just like it had been last year for eighth grade. My plan was just show up for tryouts, do your best. You can make the team. You're good enough. But the reality was the high school had two large middle schools funneling into it, okay? So that means four teams are now going to be whittled down to two teams. So the competition's... Fierce. I knew that. I mean, I knew that. That was up here somewhere. I knew that. But the reality was, I just really didn't think it through. I, I didn't take time to think through the challenge that was awaiting me. So on day one of tryouts for the freshman high school basketball team, let me tell you something. The chickens came home to roost. <laughs> I'm looking around at all these athletes, and I'm thinking, hmm, I missed the memo. You don't hang out over the summer for high school sports. You're going to skills camp, you're working out, you're practicing, you're focused. So that, that tryout didn't go so well, and I knew that. I didn't make the team. I got cut pretty early. That doesn't bother me. That's fair. That doesn't stick with me at all. It really doesn't. But there is something that does stick with me. From that experience 25 years ago. Yeah, I know. Thanks, Johnny. <laughs> it pays. It pays to think through a situation, to really think through a situation, to understand it so that you can be tuned in to reality. It pays. So all these years later, I remember that sobering feeling when my faulty reality and real reality clashed. Which one do you think won out? Before the tryout, I, I hadn't really thought it through. I didn't really understand it. And so I missed out on an opportunity because I wasn't tuned in with reality. So this morning, I want to talk about a different reality, one that pertains to all people. It's the ultimate reality, you might say. A reality that absolutely every single person needs to understand, needs to think through, and needs to be tuned in with. That reality is God's heart towards people. 
God's heart towards people. How does God view people? And by people, I mean people. Whether you're a believer here this morning with us, someone that's trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, or you're a Muslim on the other side of the, the world, or you're an atheist around the corner that hates God. How does God view people? What's his heart when he looks on his children? What's in his heart when he looks upon them, the other, those that are not here, that are not believers? What's in his heart? Thinking through this reality, what's in God's heart? Understanding it, it's, it's vital so that our hearts can be tuned in with his heart so that we can know God for who he really is, which is the ultimate reality. So this morning, as we continue our series in the book of Jonah, we're going to be covering chapter 2. Here we're going to look at a psalm. The whole summer we're in psalms, we go to Jonah, and I get to preach another psalm. We're going to look at a psalm that Jonah prayed to God while in the belly of a giant fish or a whale. And what we're going to see in this psalm and its surrounding context is a snapshot of God's heart. What's in God's heart? What's in his heart as he views people? All people. So our passage, we're going to treat it like a tuning fork. Okay? It's in tune. And what we're going to want to do is we're going to want to hear that tune so that we can tune our hearts to be in harmony with God's heart about how he views people, believers and unbelievers. So we're going to be looking at Jonah 2 through three, three different lenses. Okay, the first is Jonah's utter helplessness to save himself. We're going to see he was utterly helpless as he was drowning. Next, we're going to look at God's sheer mercy in saving Jonah. Pure mercy. And then finally, we're going to look at God's unstoppable mission to extend his mercy to the people groups of the world. Okay, so Jonah's helplessness, God's mercy, and God's mission. So go ahead and open your Bibles, Jonah chapter 2. And we're going to start actually in verse 17 of chapter 1. And I want to, I want to briefly talk about Jonah's utter helplessness as he faced death. And so read with me, beginning in chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Okay, so stop there. These two verses, they set the context for us, okay? What we see here is that Jonah is, in fact, in the belly of a giant fish or a whale. And he's singing this psalm to God that we're, we'll soon read, thanking God for saving his life from drowning. So read with me in verse 2 where Jonah summarizes for us this entire event. This is a summary statement. Verse 2, we see... I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So the summary statement, Jonah's in distress, he calls out to God, and God hears, and God responds, and God saves Jonah. And so now in verses 3 
through six, what we see here is Jonah described in poetic detail his literal drowning experience or near drowning experience. Okay, so let's look at some of these details. Start with me. I'm just going to read three through six. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Okay, so stop there. The poem splits verse 6 in half. In verse 2, we see Jonah locate himself. Do you see this phrase in verse 2? In the belly of Sheol. And then in verse 3, we see in the heart of the seas. These are figures of of speech referring to the, the depths of his near drowning experience. He's in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And for the Hebrew, the sea is not how we picture the sea. For the Hebrew, the sea represents chaos and death. And so what we see here is Jonah associating his experience drawing nearer and nearer to Sheol, to the realm of the dead. So in layman's terms, what he's basically saying was, I was as good as dead. I was as good as dead, just out there in the middle of the ocean drowning. And he elaborates on the severity of his helpless state with with three hyperbolic statements, meaning he's trying to to get a point across, so he's going to elaborate or exaggerate. In verse 5, we see weeds were wrapped about my head. That's in verse 5. These weeds are plants that grow at the bottom of the ocean. So this is a hyperbolic statement, or it's a very shallow sea, but it's a hyperbolic statement saying that he was, not only was he drowning, but he was sinking to the bottom of the sea where the the weeds grow. And then likewise in verse 6, we see that he was where the roots of the mountains begin. The roots of the mountains are the base of the mountains in the Hebrew mind. All mountains there came from the ocean. So he was at the base of the mountains. And finally in verse 6, we see this phrase, whose bars closed upon me forever. These bars are the gates of Sheol, the realm of the dead, that you enter into upon death and never escape. So he just understands himself as on the verge of death, and he feared he would soon be imprisoned forever in dead, in the dead. So as we wrap up this first point using poetic language, he is clearly showing us his literal near-drowning experience. It was bad. He was helpless. And apart from God, absolutely hopeless. Nothing he could do to save himself. So now with Jonah in this helpless state, let's move to our second point. God's sheer mercy in saving Jonah. Just pure mercy, pure grace. Read with me. Verses 6 through 9. We're going to start in the middle of verse 6. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. 
Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So at the end of verse 6, we find Jonah's only completely clear utterance of God delivering him from near drowning. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. So what we're going to do now is we're going to talk through why did God deliver Jonah? It begs the question, why did God save Jonah? Was it a true act of mercy? Was this mercy on God's part? Or did Jonah deserve this for some reason? Or did God need Jonah for some reason? Was it because Jonah deserved to be saved since he was a prophet on a special mission? If you did not join us last week, we learned in chapter 1, Jonah was a prophet on a special mission. That part is true. He was called by God to go to Nineveh, Sin City, the capital of, one of the capitals of the Assyrian Empire who were brutal, brutal people. He was called to warn them of God's impending judgment, giving them an opportunity to repent. But instead of going to Nineveh, our prophet Jonah disobeyed and he rebelled. Pure rebellion. He boarded a ship and he sailed the opposite direction to Tarshish. Why? Was he afraid to go to Nineveh? Was it a scary calling? Perhaps, but what the text seems to clearly indicate to us is that he did not want to warn the Ninevites. He did not want to give them a chance to repent. He wanted them wiped off the face of the map. That's what Jonah wanted. So he disobeyed God by trying to run away and hide from God's presence. And in our text this morning, we see hints that Jonah, even while he's drowning, he is still stubborn in his disobedience and persistent in his rebellion against God. Let me show you this. Look at verse 6 again. You see the phrase in verse 6, I went down. The Hebrew verb to go down, it's used four times in this book and it has theological significance. It's more than just direction. It means something. We see it is this progression of Jonah's stubbornness in his rebellion against God and against God's plan. And he goes down in his attempt to run away from God, to hide from God, to thwart God's mercy. So it won't show up on the screen, but we see this verb in chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. Immediately after Jonah received his commission, he went down from Jerusalem to uh, Joppa, where he boarded a ship. And he went down from Joppa to the ship itself. That's the second. So the first is he went down from the temple to Joppa. The second is he went down from Joppa to the ship. The third is he went down from the ship into its inner belly. So that's three progressions there in chapter 1 of him attempting to run away of him disobeying, of him going further and further vainly from the presence of God, going further and further from the will of God. And finally here in verse 6, we see Jonah at the height of his stubborn rebellion. He went down, verse 6, 
to the bottom of the ocean. You can't go any further than that. Sinking as far away from God as he could. And it was at this point realizing it doesn't pay to run away from God. And so at the height of his rebellion, at the height of his stubbornness, what do we see? Verse 6, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Mercy. It clearly wasn't because Jonah was particularly useful to God. God's merciful. So why did the Lord save his life by transporting him from the belly of Sheol to the belly of the fish? Was it because Jonah was repentant? Was he remorseful for his sin? The text doesn't really indicate that. Now, perhaps he was a little, but the text doesn't highlight that. The text doesn't go into detail explaining his remorse. In our text, there is no confession. There is no admission of guilt. There is no request for divine forgiveness. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. He's simply praising and thanking God for saving him, for his mercy. It's not a psalm of lament, which you would expect from a prophet, confessing his sin to God, asking for forgiveness. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. Some even see Jonah in this psalm with his somewhat half-hearted, maybe not at all repentance, even blaming God for his present situation. Look at verse 3 again. Verse 3 says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The you there being the Lord. And if you read chapter 1, verse 15, you'll see it was the sailors, not the Lord, who hurled Jonah into the sea at Jonah's own request. And while it's true the Lord is sovereign over all things, the text makes very clear he is sovereign over all of these events. It doesn't change the fact that Jonah was responsible for running away from the Lord and that Jonah, before he had the sailors throw him overboard, could have repented. He was stubborn. He was rebellious. Something else that scholars note is that in our short eight-verse psalm here, Jonah talks about himself a lot. He talks about himself 27 times, and he talks about the Lord only 15. And the way in which he talks about himself seems to mostly be in a very positive light. In other words, quote, the one praying for deliverance is more prominent in Jonah's prayer than God the deliverer. Meaning, he seems to think very highly of his piety. So why then did God save Jonah? It was not because he was useful. We'll see he could use anything, a fish. It's not because he was really repentant. Why? Look at verse 7. Read with me. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. In verse 7, the key phrase we see 
is I remembered the Lord. To remember the Lord is to draw to mind his character, who he is, his heart when he looks upon you. It's to draw that to mind and it's to appeal to him for help, mercy. So the text doesn't say exactly what Jonah remembered, but the context seems to give us some pretty strong clues. So look with me at verse 8. Verse 8, Jonah says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That steadfast love there can be translated mercy. And in the context of Jonah, it's not steadfast love just for God's people. It's mercy for all people. And Jonah knew this about the Lord. And Jonah remembered this about the Lord. And Jonah called for mercy. Mercy, help me. God is merciful. That's the point. And he delights in showing his mercy. He delights in showing his mercy to all who turn to him in faith. So with that being said, the reason is pretty clear. Jonah remembered God as a merciful God, and he he pleaded for help. Come get me, God. Save me. And God did. God sent the fish. The fish was there. The fish was appointed. And the fish delivered Jonah. So I tell a number of stories when I preach, and so at some point these are going to start to get recycled. That's just how it goes. Y'all listen patiently. The stories I'm going to tell, I I can't remember if I've told them before, but I'm going to tell them again. But with Jonah in mind, one of the advantages of of being a preacher is you you really study this and, and it helps you to think through your own experiences with God through the lens of that particular passage. So I'm going to tell a couple stories and, um, highlight some of the truths here from the book of Jonah, especially chapter 2. So I have a good friend that I bumped into many years ago. And uh, we bumped into each other at a chapel service at Dallas Seminary. Now, at that point, we had not seen each other for 10 years, my friend and I. And the last time that we saw each other, neither one of us was living a life that honored God. Uh, I was a rebellious Christian, and he at the time was an unbeliever at enmity with God. Okay, so that's the last time we saw each other before we bumped into each other at Dallas Seminary. And as you can imagine, when we bumped into each other at a seminary, our eyes got big. We didn't have to say a word to one another to know exactly what the other person was thinking. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? So after chapel, I had lunch with him, and he shared with me his testimony, how God saved him from his sins. He told me that by the time he reached his mid-20s, he had done pretty well in the business world. He was affluent. He was able to afford to do just about anything he wanted. It just wasn't adding up. He shared with me that one night in particular, he was sitting on his back porch of his new home, watching the sunset, drinking scotch, smoking a great cigar, expecting for that to fulfill him. 
and being disappointed that it wasn't. And so he said, I just cried out to God. I said, God, if you're real, and I think you are, please make yourself known to me. This is not, this is not living. I am missing something in my life. Everything I've tried is just vanity, smoke, it's hollow. My life feels hopeless. And what my friend didn't realize is he's affirming Jonah's comment in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Idols, whatever they are, they're, they're just smoke, they're vain, they're powerless, they're hopeless. So he cried out that night, and I don't remember the exact timeline, but several weeks later, he met his future wife who was a Christian, who had something in her that he saw and that he wanted. So she invited him to church. He started going to church, kept going to church, heard the gospel, heard it again, heard it again. Finally, he trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins, and he tasted life. He had hope. He had a relationship with his creator, with his savior, and it was good. It fulfilled him. He's never looked back. Saw him at Dallas Seminary. All these years later, as I reflect on my own experience with him, having lunch, sharing our testimonies, I can now see my own testimony. It also reflects truths from the book of Jonah. So for a season as a Christian, I like Jonah foolishly attempted to move away from God, to run away from him, all in an effort to try to live independent from God, from his presence and from his will. And let me tell you, it's not possible. Can't escape God. So as I said earlier, this book of Jonah talks about going down, to go down, and it has theological significance of of running away. I'm being stubborn and rebellious. But it, it tells us something else. It doesn't just describe the rebellion. It tells us something else about the nature of it, what you can expect as you go down from God, as you attempt to remove yourself from God's presence and his will. What's interesting is each time Jonah went down, there was a gradual progression of his confinement. He went down from the temple to Joppa, where he got on a boat, on the deck of a boat. There he went down into the belly of the boat, which was even more confined. And finally, he went down to the belly of Sheol, where the gates would enclose upon him forever. The confinement increased with each step away from God. So the irony is this, when you run away from God and try to live free from him, We get the exact opposite. We get confinement. Rather than freedom, we experience a greater sense of confinement, suffocation, and paralysis. God is life. He's life. Life is sourced in him. Our lives are dependent on him. What else would we expect 
but a feeling of death as we try to run away from God. So in my season of rebellion, like Jonah, I absolutely experienced internally, emotionally, this gradually increasing internal confinement and suffocation and paralysis each step away from God that I took, wanting freedom but getting the opposite. And like Jonah, at my lowest point, when I felt like I was at the bottom of the ocean and there was nothing I could do, God began to bring to mind his character. He began to show me his goodness, his faithfulness, his mercy, his love. And he began to prompt me. He began to prompt me to relent. And so finally, I'll never forget one day I just said, God, okay, come get me. Come get me. Pull me out of this mess that I've made in my life. And he did. He did. That's another story. But it was beautiful. And it's all because God is merciful. He delights in showing his mercy. So we see this mercy in saving Jonah. But something else I want to show you about God's mercy is that he's on an unstoppable mission to show his mercy to people groups around the world. So this moves to our final point here. It's just going to be two verses we're going to look at. As we look at God's unstoppable mission, read with me verses 17 from chapter 1, and then we're going to read the final verse of chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, now skip chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This fish, this giant fish, this whale, it was divinely appointed. Meaning God put it there, that moment, for a purpose. And this fish was obedient. It did exactly what God said. All for a purpose not only to save Jonah's life. The story is bigger than Jonah. It demonstrates for us the nature of God's mission to show mercy to people groups around the world, to give others a chance to know him, to believe upon his son. He's on a mission to do this around the world for people all equally undeserving as Jonah and as me. In verse 9, we see salvation belongs to the Lord. This is an intricate component of God's mission. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Saving grace, saving mercy exists nowhere outside of the Lord, which today we know to be in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. So many rightly see this this statement in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord, as one of the central verses of the whole book. And God wants people to know this. Salvation belongs to me. I'm merciful. He wants people to know this. So he sent Jonah. Jonah was rebellious. Jonah was disobedient. He appointed a fish who was obedient and who transported Jonah back 
to land, not just for Jonah's sake, but for Nineveh's sake. Jonah is a prophet. He, of course, knew this about the Lord, that salvation is exclusively in the Lord. He knew that. So God called him to go and share this opportunity for Nineveh to repent. Yet Jonah refused. Absolutely refused. Why? He didn't want to share the Lord's mercy with the Ninevites. He didn't think they were worthy. The Lord's mercy is for us. It's not for them. God's appointment of this obedient fish, something Jonah was not. Jonah was not obedient. God's appointment of this obedient fish teaches us something else about the Lord's mission. It teaches us that his sovereign mission cannot be stopped. Cannot be stopped. Therefore, we have a choice. You and I, we all have a choice to make ourselves available to the Lord. Use me. There's lots of lost people out there that you love, that you want to show your mercy to. Use me. So how does God view people? When he looks at believers, when he looks at unbelievers, what's in his heart? It's mercy. Mercy. He is merciful. So brothers and sisters, we are to tune our hearts to the heart of God by seeking his mercy for ourselves, but sharing his mercy with others, the unbelievers who do not know him. We are to live in accord with the reality of who God is. He is merciful. And so this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, there's no tryouts. There's no cuts. There's no A team or B team. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and he is merciful. He sent his son, Jesus, to make himself known to live the life we never could and die the death we deserve Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins paying the penalty we owe God he died and was buried for three days and interestingly enough this is called the sign of Jonah for three days he was dead and he came back to life validating that he is who he says he is the son of God and that mercy and grace and forgiveness and life are in him. And you receive it simply by believing upon him, trusting in his death on your behalf that it did pay the penalty you owe God. And you receive mercy. You become a forever child of God, always in his family, given hope, given a mission on this world to share that mercy with others. And if you're a believer this morning and you're struggling with sin or you're struggling with rebellion or you're struggling with how you think God views you, please know when he looks at you, he sees his righteous son. Mercy is in his heart for you. You don't get cut from this team in your rebellion, in your obedience. You are forever a child of God. And so rather than running away from God, rather than hiding, attempting to hide from his presence, remember he's merciful. Cry out to his mercy and he will come to you and he will show himself to be merciful because that's who he is. That's what's in his heart.
Let's pray. Father, we love you. Oh, we love you. Because you first loved us by sending your son who took upon himself our guilt, our shame, that we might experience your mercy when we believe upon him for the forgiveness of our sins. We praise you as a merciful God, and oh God, we need your mercy. We are finite people. We so easily get distracted. We so easily attempt to run from you or involve ourselves in things that are not good for us. Shower us with your mercy. Continually show us just how merciful you are. May we praise your name in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.